Well, good morning, everyone. I'm so glad that you're joining with us here for our brand new series for Lent called Jesus is King. And this is really the theme that we want to explore over the next six or so weeks. We want to explore how Jesus is king, how he is ruler, how he is sovereign, not only of the world, but he also should be king and ruler of our lives. And so for this series, what we're going to be doing is really exploring what's called the Passion Week. The Passion Week are the days leading up to Jesus' death and his crucifixion and his resurrection. And so each week here together, we're going to be taking one of those days and really exploring what happens, explaining it, and then most of all, obviously after last week as well, applying it to our lives. So today we're going to be taking a look at what happens on the Sunday before Jesus is crucified. Next week we're going to take a look at what happens on the Monday. This is where Jesus overturns the tables. And then the Tuesday and Wednesday and so on as we go. And I think that this is a really important series for us for Lent. Because what Lent is really about is really about us learning to slow down a little bit. To reflect, to sacrifice, and to repent. And what Lent is really about is us actually preparing ourselves to really understand the true reality and power of Jesus' death and resurrection. So I think us exploring the days leading up to Jesus' death and resurrection is appropriate for Lent. And I really want to challenge you. Um, I really want to challenge you to actually practice Lent this year. This is something we as a church have been practicing uh, for the last number of years, but it's something that Christians have honestly been practicing for centuries. And so today, if you aren't a follower of Jesus, I'm really glad that you're joining with us and here to listen and to learn and be a part of what we're kind of um, moving through here together. But if you're a Christian, I really want to be bold and actually challenge you to practice Lent. Because while Lent um, isn't commanded in the Bible, what I would like to point out is that the practices of Lent are commanded. Things like repentance, things like uh, sacrifice, things like fasting and obedience. These are things that we need to actually be putting in uh, to practice in our lives. So I want to invite you to really take seriously Lent, to give up something and to follow it. And to really over these next 40 days, to really be focusing in on following Jesus. Because what Lent is about is not us becoming healthier people, it's about us becoming more Christ-like people. And I think that's so needed. And so um, to help us understand all of this, I want to read you a quote from a man named Chris Green. He's a theologian, and I really appreciate what he has to say about Lent specifically. This is from his small little book called Surprised by God, which is uh, really fantastic. And it's a little bit long, but I honestly don't think I can improve upon how he explains what Lent is and what we're called into. He says this, he says, over Lent's 40 days, with whatever measure of faith has been graced to us, we have the chance to give ourselves with renewed energy and seriousness to fasting and to almsgiving, to self-denial and to sacrifice. He says, we have the chance to make room for God at the heart of our lives. Isn't that a beautiful way to put it? That over Lent, what we do is we do have a chance to make room for God at the heart of our lives, both by what we give up and by what we give away. He says, during Lent, we not only fast occasional meals and familiar luxuries and shallow entertainments. He says, we're not doing this for self-improvement or our health after all. He says, like Christians have been doing from the beginning, we also fast from hasty words and needless chatter, from contemptuous and mistrustful thoughts, from angry and bitter feelings. He says, we fast from unwarranted judgments about ourselves and others. We give up self-hate. We give up impatience with our children. We give up fear of strangers and hatred of our enemies. And we give away food to the hungry, drink to the thirsty, clothes to the naked, and shelter to the homeless. He says, we visit the sick and the imprisoned. We bury the dead with honor. We offer instruction to the ignorant, counsel to the doubting, comfort to the sorrowful, reproof to the erring. He says, we forgive those who have wronged us and bear with those who trouble and annoy us. He says, we pray for everything and everyone. And that's really what Lent is about. It's about us praying for everything and everyone, about us really giving up things that don't look at all like Jesus Christ. So I want to invite you to practice Lent this year, to take it seriously. Here in our services, we're going to be doing that. 
We're going to be praying as we have in the past our prayer of confession each and every week. And we're also going to be encouraging you to continue to take seriously all of those themes of submission, of sacrifice, of repentance and reflection. Because Lent is meant to turn us into uh, living and loving and looking more like Christ. I want to invite you into that. So with that understanding today, we want to jump into our passage for today, which is in found in Luke 19. And so today we're going to be taking a look at what happens on the Sunday before Jesus is um, crucified, died and buried and rose again. And so we're going to be taking a look at what's called the triumphal entry where Jesus enters into Jerusalem. And we're going to see in this, this theme of really that Jesus is king. So I want to read it to you. It's found in Luke 19. It's also found in Matthew and Mark and John as well. But we're going to be in Luke 19 here today. I want to read it. We're going to start to kind of explain some of it and work it through before we have communion here today. So we read this. After telling the story, Jesus went on towards Jerusalem, walking ahead of his disciples. And as he came to the towns of Bethpage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples ahead. And he said this, go into the village over there, he told them. As you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks why you are untying that colt, just say the Lord needs it. So they went and they found the colt, just as Jesus had said. And sure enough, as they were untying it, the owners asked them, why are you untying that colt? And the disciples simply replied, the Lord needs it. So they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it for him to ride on. And as he rode along, the crowd spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. And when they, he reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles they had seen. And this is what they shouted. They said, blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. But some of the Pharisees among the crowd, they said, teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. And he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. And this is what happens on the Sunday as Jesus begins his last week of ministry before his death. And this passage here uh, and this event is recorded actually in all four Gospels. But I just want to name something um, that's important for us to recognize that we have four Gospels and actually four different ways of sharing kind of the last uh, days of Jesus' life. That if you were to go to read this passage in either Matthew, Mark, or John, what you might notice is that there might be some different details, some slight variations, and also some different emphasis in the theology and what is going on. And I bring all this up because I think it's important as we work through the different Gospels here the next uh, number of weeks, exploring really the last week of Jesus' life, to just realize that the Gospels actually tell the story of Jesus in slightly different ways. They have some different perspectives. They have some different emphasis. They have some different details that some include, others don't. I just think that we should name this and to know that this should not disturb us or worry us. That the fact that the Gospels actually tell the story of Jesus in four different ways, this has been known since the very beginning, actually. And about 60 years after the Gospels were kind of finished um, being written and collected, there was a man named Tatian. And what he did was, he actually tried to take those four Gospels and to make them into one. He tried to harmonize them. He tried to, um, you know, get rid of any uh, dissimilarities or rough edges or whatever. And he created what was called then a harmonized Gospel. And the early church actually condemned this as heresy because this is what we as Christians affirm, okay? That our Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit gave us four Gospels, not one. And we need four Gospels to actually get the story of Jesus straight, to actually see these different perspectives that are there. I just really believe that we need to realize and to recognize that. So when we come to this, uh, we should expect that. We should expect that the stories of uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John tell it in slightly different ways. And as I said, this shouldn't disturb you. This should actually give you hope. Because truthfully, 
if they are high witness accounts, and I believe that they are, this is exactly what you would expect, actually. What you would expect is when four different people have had four different eyewitness accounts to it, that they wouldn't share the story in the exact same way. They would share it with different emphasis for different audiences and different reasons and all of that. So if all of this so far has just been kind of like whoosh, here's what I want us to get as we explore the Gospels and Jesus' you know, last week of his life. What I want us to get is that the Gospels are complex and trustworthy. That's what I think we need to understand, that the Gospels are complex and trustworthy. And that the more you study them, the more complex you will realize that they are, and also the more trustworthy that they are. Fleming Rutledge is a really quite amazing scholar, and she writes this about the different Gospels, just recognizing we need four different Gospels. She says, long before the advent of critical biblical scholarship as we know it today, it was observed that the four evangelists tell the story of Jesus' life in four quite different ways. The four passion narratives vary greatly in detail and in theological emphasis. But she points out, and this can't be missed, and this must actually be the center of our thought with this. She says, where all evangelists agree, however, is in the massive attention that they give to the passion narrative and the way they aim their gospel stories towards the cross as the climax to the story of Jesus. In all four accounts, the events prior to the passion are structured to be the prologue to it and find their culmination in it with the resurrection as vindication and victory. They all agree on the major points that happen with some slight different emphasis because they're actually sharing different stories to different people, to different groups. Um, so with that, I want to then explore our story here today, the triumphal entry, um, really found in Luke 19. And what I want to take a look at today is three things with the story that we read. It's how when Jesus' actions here, where he is entering into the city of Jerusalem, that they are first intentional and that all is going on is incredibly symbolic. And what it's meant to bring to mind is that Jesus is king. That's what I want to explore briefly before we take communion together. That when Jesus enters into Jerusalem, it is intentional, it is symbolic, and it's meant to portray Jesus as king. So let me show you from the text. The first thing that we should notice here is when we read of Jesus actually um, wanting this colt or a donkey, uh, that this is intentional. He says this, he says, go into the village over there, he told them. As you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. He says, untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks why you're untying that colt, just say the Lord needs it. And right here, we really see that Jesus is planning something, that Jesus is preparing for something, that Jesus here isn't just doing random haphazard actions, that he's choosing a donkey or a colt for a very specific reason, that Jesus here is being incredibly intentional, and we can maybe put it this way, he's also being strategic. Now, growing up reading this story many, many times, I'd always thought that Jesus here was using his miraculous foresight to look into the future and to see a donkey there um, and to give the right instructions to be able to have that donkey. And I believe that that's actually uh, a part of this story. It had never occurred to me to read it any other way other than when I was actually traveling through uh, Israel a number of years ago, our guide just haphazardly kind of mentioned as we were walking this exact path that Jesus here had prepared the colt and told the owners to be there and had given them a password of the Lord knows it. And I think you can also read that in the text as well. So however you read the text of Jesus here, either using human preparation or divine foresight, both of which are um, really able ways to be able to read into the text. Whatever we, uh, however we read it, what I want us to just notice is that here, Jesus is being intentional, strategic, and he is choosing to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. This is not random. He has made this as a choice. The second uh, thing then out of this is not only is it intentional, but then it's highly symbolic. Right? That Jesus is choosing a donkey for a certain reason. And the reason is, is that Jesus here, when he is entering into Jerusalem, he is wanting to be proclaimed as king. He is actually coming into Jerusalem, actually saying that this is his kind of inauguration in many ways. That this is the beginning of his kingship, of his reign and his rule. That's what's going on. And he's using some really specific symbols to show that. The first is the symbol of the donkey, as I mentioned. 
that when Jesus chooses to ride in on a donkey, what he is doing here is fulfilling a prophecy that is found in Zechariah. Let me read it to you, and let me show you how this shows that Jesus is actually intentionally choosing to proclaim himself as king. We read this in Zechariah. It says, Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. It says this, Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Just listen to that verse. This is the verse that Jesus is intentionally fulfilling, that he is choosing to really live into, that he wants this prophecy to be fulfilled by him. It says that, look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. So when Jesus chooses to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, this is him proclaiming that he is king. This is an image and a symbol of kingship. That's what's going on. The next image or symbol of kingship that we see, because this is happening throughout it, it's intentional, it's symbolic, and it's all about Jesus being king, right, is actually the throwing of the garments. We read this. It says, So they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it for him to ride on. And as he rode along, the crowd spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. And this, too, is another symbol of kingship. We just don't have the eyes or the ears to really notice it. Because what happens in 2 Kings, you can go and read this, there's a king named Jehu. And when he is kind of anointed, and when he becomes king, the first thing that people do is throw their coats on the ground for him to walk over. So when people are doing this for Jesus, this is another symbol that Jesus is king. That's what's going on. And he's living into this by actually walking through it. And then we read this in the story, in the text. It says, when he reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles they had seen. And this is exactly what you would do if a king entered into a city. They would have heralds and people proclaiming all the great acts, all the great works of the king. And that's what's happening here. People are praising God through the work through Jesus as his representative, as really the king on earth. When the people are praising him, this is another symbol of kingship. That's what we should be reading this story through, is we should be seeing that really everything that is going on is through that symbol and through that lens of kingship. And in fact, it becomes really clear when you read what the people say about Jesus. They actually quote what's called Psalm 18, and this is what they say. They say, blessings on the king, right? Blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And this, this we should really pause and pay attention to, because whenever... Whenever anyone in the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, you should go back and check the Old Testament. Because what often happens, actually, Matthew does this, Paul does this, uh, Jesus does this, is they actually change and alter the Old Testament scripture. And that'll give you a hint about what the real meaning is. So here, when the people are, are praising Jesus, saying blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord, this is actually a quotation of Psalm 118. And this is what is called a psalm of ascent. These are the psalms that the Jewish people would sing and praise as they walked up to Jerusalem. These are a normal kind of known psalms that everyone would know. So I want to read to you Psalm 118, and then I want to read to you what the people say, and just notice what they change, right? Because this will give you a hint on what is really going on. So this is Psalm 118. We read this. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. That's Psalm 118. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And then what do the people say? Blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. So what's the change? It's obvious, right? They change the word from blessings of the one to blessings of the king. They are uh, not even subtly here, but just incredibly explicitly naming Jesus as king. That's what is going on here. Jesus' actions are doing it. And then even the words of the people around him are naming him as king. And this infuriates the Pharisees. This is why they react so strongly. This is why they then say to Jesus, but some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, teacher, 
Rebuke your followers for saying things like that. Teacher, stop them from proclaiming you as king. Teacher, stop this. This is not true. You can't do this. But what does Jesus respond? He says, he replied, if they keep quiet, even the very stones along the road would burst into cheers. Because Jesus here is intentionally, symbolically, and strategically, and clearly proclaiming himself as king. So much so that if nobody does anything, you know, the very stones would cry out that the king of glory is here, that the prince of peace is now coming into the city of peace. That what I hope we get out of this story is just this, that this story is really so clearly proclaiming Jesus as king. I think this is the appropriate place for us to begin this series really called Jesus as King. But it raises an interesting question because I think this is a question we're going to be pursuing throughout this entire series. It's just this. But what kind of a king is Jesus? Because Jesus here is clearly proclaiming himself as king by his actions, by all that is being said, by all that he does. But the real question is, is what kind of a king is he? Because in our day and age, in our day and age, we aren't so familiar with kings, with rulers or sovereigns or emperors. But in Jesus' day and age, they were very familiar with kings, with rulers, with sovereigns and emperors. In fact, Jesus' actions right here are really, really contrasted to a, uh, a current kind of king in Jesus' day and age. I want to explain to you kind of the reigning kind of ruler in Jerusalem. That there was a man who really had all authority, who had all power, that really whatever he said went, that for all intents and purposes, he was kind of like a pseudo or de facto king of Jerusalem. And do you want to know what his name was? His name was Pilate. I want to explain to you how Pilate entered into Jerusalem and how Jesus entered into Jerusalem. And you're going to see a massive difference between the two of them. Right? So when Pilate enters into Jerusalem, this is what we know from history, is that when Pilate did it, he entered in and he had this massive white tunic on. It would have just been like gleaming in the sun. Then on top of that, what he had, well, what was called a gold breastplate. Right? And so this was over top of this white tunic. And you have to imagine that in the bright sun of Israel, this would just be shining and gleaming. On top of that, he then had a giant cape that was red and crimson, and it just flowed uh, behind him. Right? These are all images of kingship. Right? This is how Pilate uh, goes into Jerusalem. And when he goes into Jerusalem, he isn't riding a donkey. Anyone want to take a guess what he is riding? He's riding a massive war horse. Uh, it is told that it was pure white, no blemishes whatsoever, and totally decked out and ready for war. On top of that, he carries in the standards of Caesar Augustus, proclaiming his as emperor and Pilate as his representative, saying, for all intents and purposes, he's in charge now. He's the king. He's going to rule Jerusalem. And when Pilate enters into Jerusalem, he does this, not on his own, but with four to 6,000 soldiers marching in procession behind him, threatening anyone with death if they interfere whatsoever. This is kind of the imagery that Jesus is comparing and contrasting with his entrance. That when Jesus enters in, he doesn't look at all like Pilate, all about arrogance and power and fear and violence. Jesus enters in, how does Zechariah say it? With humility, actually, with humility, riding on a donkey, with people praising God, with there being garments thrown down, not with their fear, violence, and injustice happening. And in fact, some scholars believe that Pilate entered into Jerusalem this way at least annually, at least annually to continue to proclaim to the people, I am the true power here. And what some scholars believe, guess what? What some scholars believe is that Pilate is entering into Jerusalem at the exact same time that Jesus is entering into Jerusalem, just on the other side. That Jesus has timed his entrance to coincide with Pilate's so that there would be no question that Jesus is king, but he is not king like that. He does not reign with violence and fear and power in the way that Pilate does. No, no, no. Look at your king, Zechariah says. He comes in humility. He comes on a donkey in a different way. 
So what does this all mean for us today? What it just means is this. This is my main point for us. If we don't get anything out else out of the sermon, it's just this. That Jesus is king like no other. That's my main point today. That's what this passage is pointing to. That Jesus truly is king, but king like no other. He is not a king like Pilate or like Caesar or an emperor like that. He is true king of the universe, but he is a king like no other. This is what this passage is getting at. This is what we need to understand that Jesus truly is king. And this is pointed to by him choosing a donkey, by the coats, by the praises of a people, by his very own actions. But he is a king not like any other. So what does this mean for us here today? Well, there's a lot that we could get into about how Jesus' reign and his rule is very different than the world's. And that's what we're going to take a look at, actually, over this series. How Jesus truly is king, but he is a king like no other. We're going to flesh that out. We're going to see next week how Jesus' kingdom runs according to justice and inclusion as he flips the tables in the marketplace and in the temple. We're going to see how he is a king like a servant when he washes the disciples' feet. We're going to see how he is a king like no other, especially when he is crucified and when he is buried and then when he rises again. This is what we're going to see over the next few weeks. But for today, today, the the way that I think that this impacts all of us isn't just to understand how Jesus is a king like no other. The way this impacts us is really for us to choose how are we going to respond to Jesus as king. I think that's the real edge of this sermon. Really, that when we see Jesus here entering into Jerusalem on this triumphal entry, he is entering in as king. The question is, is how do we then respond to Jesus as king? Like, do we respond like the Pharisees with resistance and rejection? Do we respond like some, I'm sure, in the crowds who hung back and were unsure and hedged their bets and didn't really want to proclaim Jesus as king? Or are we going to be like those who are proclaiming and saying blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord? Are we really going to pledge our allegiance to Jesus? as king. I think that's what this sermon is really about, is that if Jesus is king, and he is, are we going to pledge allegiance to him as king? I think in our modern-day Western world, we are very comfortable sometimes with talking about Jesus as a support, as an advisor, as a counselor, and this is all true. Jesus is a support, an advisor, and a counselor, but what we sometimes forget is that Jesus isn't just a support or a counselor or an advisor. He is also king and ruler and sovereign and reigns over the entire universe, and so for us, our first response to this passage should be, are we going to choose, really, to live with obedience, with faithfulness, with submission, or, as I said, with allegiance to him? So for some of you, you may have chosen to follow Jesus a long time ago. Others of you maybe haven't chosen to follow him yet. I think today, though, is that day to make that choice because we need to continually choose to follow Jesus as our king. And so today, to do that, the appropriate way to kind of close our service and to close um, and begin really this time of Lent is really with communion. Because what communion really is about is us pledging our allegiance to Jesus as King, to recognizing that yes, he is also Savior, but he is also Lord, and that he reigns and that he rules and that we need to submit to him. That's what communion is about. So today as we come to communion, my challenge is this, is would you really pledge allegiance to Jesus as your King? And then when we continue to follow that over this series and really for the rest of our lives, we'll be exploring it, but it begins first with us choosing to follow him. Because Jesus here, when he enters into Jerusalem, is proclaiming he is king. The question is, is how are you going to respond to him as king? So as we come to communion, that's my challenge for you. As we take communion, would you really pledge allegiance to him? Because Jesus truly is king of the universe and king of the world. And I also hope that he is king of your life and that he is king of mine as well. So with that, would you join with me in prayer? Uh, this morning. God, I pray. I pray would we truly pledge our allegiance to you? Would we follow you? Would we be obedient to you? Would we submit and sacrifice to you? God, 
Um, as we just recognize your kingship, your reign, your rule, I pray, Lord, we continue to live in absolute faithfulness and obedience to you. And I pray today, Lord, if there are those who have never actually pledged their life to you, if they've never chosen to follow you, would today be the day that they do that? Would today be the day where they choose to follow you for the first time because uh, you are a good king, a king like no other king. And so might we follow you with our lives and might we continue to live in the rhythm of your kingdom and the reign of, of your spirit. And we pray this all in the wonderful name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen and amen.